I was at my house yesterday uh, driving uh, up to my drive uh, to park my truck. Uh, I passed my father-in-law. One of my favorite people in the world is my father-in-law, Byron. He is 90 years young. Uh, to know him is to love him. Uh, he's got his walker. Uh, I love him for so many reasons, but one of my favorite things about my father-in-law, he's, he's, he's still doing it. He's diligent. He's, he's set a schedule for himself or he, you know, no one would bat an eye if he just kind of sat in my house and just you know, did nothing, but he, he is regimented, meals, everything. Same time, same food every day. Anybody got someone like that in their life? He's the same breakfast, lunch, varies dinner from time to time. But it's just amazing to me that he does this. And I think it's a real tribute to him that, you know, he's lived as long as he had. He's, he's just an organized dude. And so he, he has taken it upon himself to be my yard crew. Never asked him to do it, but he's gone out in my uh, yard and, and uh, committed himself to cleaning areas that I would never have bothered with. Uh, uh, he loves to yank vines off of big daddy, granddaddy oaks. He, you know, those big thick vines that grow up on there. And so he'll literally, you know, all 100 whatever pounds of him will just reef on these, you know, vines. And uh, so that's what I drove up to yesterday as I was coming into my yard. He was at another oak tree yanking on another huge vine. Uh, I went inside Greeted my bride, Eleanor. Uh, my oldest son, Ben, was once again doing laundry at my house. Uh, but it was great to see him, so we were just sitting in my living room talking, and, uh, and then Dad shuffles in. Uh, he's on his walker. He kind of pushes his walker out of the way and plops down on the couch, and Eleanor says to Dad, Dad, where are your glasses? <laughs> like, he should have just known. They weren't on his face, but he thought he'd check, so he kind of does this whole thing. Oh, and this is what he says. You got to know Byron. He's just very matter of fact, low drama, love him. He's like, oh, they must have fallen off when I fell. <laughs> so here we go. We're, we're getting a story. Okay, Dad, when did you fall? Well, just now. Tell us about it. And he went on to detail the story for us. He had taken his walker, and he can spin it around, and it acts like a chair, okay? So he had pushed it up as close as he could to this uh, oak tree, and as in doing so, the, the root system kind of created a pitch, uh, you know, in front of the tree. And so his wheels kind of came up a little bit. He set his parking brake and he started kind of reefing on this vine. Well, he, he, he had no luck at all, uh, you know, no love, until finally it budged just a little bit. So much so that the, you know, the inertia of the, of the experience made him plop down in his chair and he went completely over the back of this thing and lays out at the base of this tree where no one can see. Does anybody... I'm putting cameras up because we're just missing some gold here. <laughs> be, be assured he's fine. He made it back into the house to tell the story. Could have gone bad, but he was fine. He took a tumble. When he took a tumble, we, we, I don't have any proof of this, but I think his glasses shot off his face by about six or eight feet because we found them way, of, you know, and, and he didn't even realize they were gone as he came back in. <sighs> we're going to talk today about decisions. Uh, my dad made the decision to yank on that vine and he flipped over his walker. Might not do it again that way. Can anybody guess that that probably will be the case? Uh, fool me once, shame on. How's that go? I always get it wrong. But, but it only takes one mistake to learn and hopefully move on. Uh, uh, but decisions come at, a, at an alarmingly rapid rate. Do you know how many decisions you're going to make today? How many decisions do you think you're going to make today? Psychologists have figured this out. I don't know if they counted <laughs> But they figure that humans make between 34 and 36,000 decisions a day. That's a lot of decisions. Now, admittedly, many of them trivial, have no bearing 
uh, on you know, the outcomes of life, but there are those decisions that uh, we make that shape our very existence moving forward. The author Ken Levine says this, we all make choices, but the, in the end our choices make us. We are the sum of our decisions in life. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this, he said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. I love that statement, I, I just I wanna preach that message. The good and evil, uh, if you sow those into the world, uh, you will reap a harvest of either good or evil from those decisions that you've made. He says, good or evil, both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions that you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. We're gonna watch in the life of this guy, Saul, this first king of Israel, uh, as he makes a decision that's going to shape the rest of his life and his family's life. It's gonna determine the outcome of his existence. We're gonna learn that our decisions, like his, will determine whether we make a mess out of life or make the most of this life. I had fun with this one in a little bit if you came to church this morning. I'm gonna teach you some surefire ways to make a mess of your life. If you came in here hoping to find out how can I ruin my life, I'm gonna tell you, welcome to church. But we need to set up the story before we get to the decision that Saul makes. So let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse one. It says that Saul lived for one year and then he became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, he chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, that one year, two year thing, don't wanna spend a lot of time on that, but probably uh, our, our historian here is chronicling for us uh, the time that it took for Saul first to hear about becoming a king, Samuel anointing him to be king, and then him being coronated last chapter at Gilgal. It was about a year long process, all right? So like we vote for our president in November, he isn't sworn in until, what is it, January, February, yeah. So there's just a process there. Uh, it's the same thing, took a year for Saul to fully be minted as king. About a year later, he decides, we've gone long enough as a nation without a standing army. The way Israel had always fought its battles is that every tribe for himself, first of all, if someone invaded you know, the tribe of Judah, the Judahites would fight that fight. Occasionally in our history uh, telling of, of the story of Israel, you'll see other tribes come to the aid of other tribes. Uh, but now, because there's one king over 12 tribes, the king's like, all right, we're gonna have an army for all of us. And he starts with 3,000 guys. It says that Saul chose these 3,000 men. 2,000 were with him uh, in a place called Michmash. It's a fun, it's, everybody say that together, ready? Michmash, it's just fun to say. Michmash, Michmash, anyway, all right. Uh, uh, and it was up in the hill country of uh, Bethel. And then 1,000 went with a guy who we're being introduced to today for the first time. He'll play a, a larger role in our story. Uh, he's, his name is Jonathan. He's not labeled as the son of Saul, but we will find out later this is exactly who he is. Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, and so he takes a 1,000 men with him of the 3,000, and they go back to the tribe of Benjamin's territory in a place called Gibeah, where Jonathan grew up with his dad, Saul. The rest of the people, it says, Saul sends home. We got our army. You guys, thank you for, if you were here last week, they had a big fight with uh, the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead. He's like, you guys can go home. 3,000 will stay. 
Well, we don't have a whole lot of lead up to this next part, but it tells us in verse 3 that Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at a place called Geba. So we don't know who started the fight. We do know that the Philistines, who have been introduced in the story of 1 Samuel, uh, had come up uh, from the... (laughs) from the uh, west here in the Mediterranean region, and they had kind of you know, gone into the nation of Israel. They still had strongholds, still had like villages or towns of their own that hadn't been expelled. And so apparently there was one here at Geba, and Jonathan, for however it happened, got into a fight with that garrison, and his thousand men were able to repel the Philistines there and drive them out of Geba. And it tells us that the Philistines heard of it. No, duh. Someone escaped from that battle, went back to the Philistine, you know, uh, main camp and said, hey man, uh, the Israelites picked a fight with us at Geba, Uh, what are we going to do? We're going to find out in a second. Saul also heard the news of the battle and he goes right to Twitter. He starts tweeting up a storm, right? He uh, blows his trumpet there in Israel and lets everybody hear that the, uh, the, basically the next verse tells us that, uh, that they had, he, Saul, had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Time out. I thought Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Well, like so many bosses in our day and age, Saul had no problem taking credit for something that his underlings had done. And so he absorbed all of the shine, tweeted that out. Uh, And Israel heard of the exploits of Saul at uh, Geba. Now, it wasn't just the Israelites hearing about this, though. The Philistines heard about it. And it tells us in the next sentence uh, that uh, Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. Um, This is kind of Hebrew poetry, meaning the Philistines were mad. They weren't just going to let this defeat at Geba just lie. All right? Uh, So we're going to do something about this, and we are tired of Israel messing with us. We're going to mess with them. (laughs) And so uh, in light of that, Paul makes this preemptive move to bring uh, the people, the soldiers that were numbered amongst his 3,000 from wherever they were to Gilgal, where he was going to make kind of a final stand in this fight, this new fight with the Philistines. Now, what comes next is a detailing of the Philistine army. Want to read about it? Here it comes. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, and they had 30,000 chariots. How many uh, soldiers were in the Israeli army? 3,000. So there's 10 times the number of the infantry of Israel in the tank division of the Philistines, which is what chariots were in the the day that they uh, were talking about. Chariots would just run through infantry, you know, and swing and hack uh, as the horses led them through, and they were a dominant force in hand-to-hand combat of this age. So there's 30,000 chariots, okay. But on top of that, there's another 6,000 in the cavalry alone, just single riders on horses. And then when it comes to their infantry, they just didn't even bother counting. There were so many of them, they were like the sand on the seashore in number. So this is the Philistine force in Israel. One more time, how many they got? 3,000. Somebody's in trouble. Uh, it tells us in the next verses what happens as a result. Uh, Israel, if uh, you're wondering, freaks out and they pull a Saul. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what that means in a second. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were indeed hard-pressed, the people, the soldiers, hid themselves in the caves and in the holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Basically, anywhere there was space, that's where they found uh, a place to go. 
Um, I say they pull a Saul because when Saul was told he was going to be king and was at his coronation, anybody remember where he went? Did he go right to the front of the room and say, crown me? No, what did he do? He went to the baggage claim. He went and hid. This is in your Bibles. It's one of my favorite verses that we've read recently. Saul, the anointed king of Israel, hides in the luggage. It's in your book. He didn't want to be king. He was afraid of what lies ahead or laid ahead. Uh, And in the same way, as the the pressure of this battle uh, rested on the hearts of these soldiers, they're like, I'm out of here. And they started crawling in any hole that they could find. Some of them went so far to even leave the country. They were deserters. It says that some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, these other nations across the Jordan River to the east. So there's Saul. He's in Gilgal. And he's hanging out with these other soldiers that were following him. And everybody is freaking out. Now, if you go forward in the story, you're going to find out that the number that Saul has at the end of this whole situation in his army is 600. So if you're doing the math at home, that's 80% of his force that deserted him by the time this is all over. Again, I don't have time to go through the whole chapter. Uh, Just to let you know, it's going to be a bad season in Israel. The Philistines are going to run amok. And uh, Israel's just going to have to let them do it because they don't have the army to repel them. But let's move back to where we are now in our story. Saul's there at Gilgal, 600 soldiers, roughly, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And this is where we start. My teaching of the surefire ways to make a mess of your life. Three things that Saul does. You do them, you'll make a mess too. The first thing he does is he lets adverse circumstances overwhelm him. If you wanna make a mess of your life, Go all chicken little up in here. Let whatever's happening in your world overwhelm you to the point that you make bad choices. Anybody been there? I I, uh, occasionally will uh, try to bring all the groceries into the house at the same time. Is anybody else like this, fellas? Anybody? I'm a big man. I can carry 17 bags of, you know, Publix, whatever. Let's do this. But I'll have balanced like the the huge, you know, uh, family pack of toilet paper on this shoulder and as it start to fall, fall, I reach to grab it with this hand, which is holding the eggs. Has anybody been with me? And as the panic sets in, groceries everywhere, right? That's kind of the picture that we have here of Saul. Let's read, uh, and we'll find out uh, why. He waits seven days, it says in verse 8, which was the time that had been appointed by Samuel. Some of you are like, hey, Mark, I haven't read that yet. Well, it, it came a few weeks ago when Tom was preaching in chapter 10, Uh, Saul was just getting familiar with the idea of becoming king, and Samuel says to him, hey, God's going to give you signs. A couple of them have already occurred. If you go back and read them, they they happen in the moment as Samuel's talking about them, but some of them uh, were to come, and one of them was in chapter 10, verse 8, where Samuel says this, there will be a time, I'm putting that in there for myself, that you will go down before me to Gilgal. This is that time. And behold, I am going to come to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. And and I'll I'll come to you in seven days. You've got to wait for seven days until I come to you. And then God will show us both, me, his prophet, you, his king, what we are to do. All right? So that's, as we fast forward here to chapter 13, what, what is being spoken of. Saul had been told, wait seven days, burnt offerings, peace offerings, and then we'll know what to do. 
Saul was familiar with the history of Israel. Anytime you go into a fight and you don't honor God and bring God with you into that fight, it's an instant loss. You're just not going to win. So wisely, let's give him credit where credit's due, he persists in his waiting. But the whole time he's waiting these seven days, soldiers are leaving, choosing, you know, holes in the ground over fighting the Philistines. And he's starting to feel it personally and hear it, you know, uh, externally from those who are remaining. Hey, Saul, uh, I can hear the chariots. They're over the hill. I can hear them rumbling towards us. Can we hurry up with these sacrifices? I'm with you. We need God to go with us in this battle. But I don't see Samuel coming, and we need to get these sacrifices done in case the battle is today. As a leader, anybody leading here? As a leader, you can feel that weight from your people who are like, you got to do this. we got to make this happen. And, and you're like, uh, Samuel didn't show up. Uh, he will on the seventh day, just like he said. Uh, but... Uh, he wasn't an early arriver. He would have fit great in Baylife, right? <laughs> oh, I got that in. And I meant what I meant. I get here earlier, please. We start this service at 1045. All right. <laughs> but uh, Samuel would have fit right in because he wasn't coming until the seventh day. He'll arrive. Uh, but he, he was maybe uh, not like some of the people I know. I go to uh, uh, dinner this past week with a guy I've been discipling and getting to know, and uh, he's been in the military, so uh, he, 15 minutes early is 15 minutes late for him, right? Like I actually got to this restaurant super early thinking maybe I'll get there before he does this one time, and of course he's been there for like an hour or something like that. Didn't happen. But uh, Saul doesn't show up, and so... You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, still not there. Uh, Saturday, sixth day, still not showing. Finally, on the seventh day, people are like, Saul, you had better stop messing around and make these sacrifices happen. Because they were scattering, it says there, before him. Hmm. So here it comes. Saul allows the adverse circumstances that swirl around him to influence him in a way he should have never gone. And in verse 9, he says, all right, bring me those burnt offerings. Bring me those peace offerings. Here we go. Uh, he's going to make the actual bad decision that messes up his life in the next verse. But I want you to know that every horrible decision that you've made that's messed up your life started with the first horrible decision, which was, I'm going to go against what I know is right, against what I absolutely am sure should be the case, and because everything's so stressful and crazy, I'm going to make a unilateral, personal decision to do it some way differently. It's just a subtle turn, a subtle shift of direction. It's just a turning of the head. There's so many passages in our Bibles that talk about this subtle shift, this, this simple turn. Warning against it, saying, don't start down that road. Don't head in the direction of this bad decision. Stay the course. Saul's uh, successor is a guy named David. We're going to hear more about him. But uh, uh, he's a pretty outstanding follower of God. And he, he's... Uh, responsible for penning many of the psalms in the book of psalms. And one that he writes is the first one. 
I was made to memorize it as a fourth grader at Devon Park Baptist Christian School. Uh, and so it's still in my head, in the King James Version, because that was the only version for that church. But uh, uh, it goes like this. This is how the book of Psalms opens. It says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And I know it looks different behind me. That's the English Standard Version. But that's what I memorized it in. I was, I don't know, 35 years old before I ever really thought about what I'd memorized at the age of nine. I had to preach on this passage, and I was like, oh, I get it now. He was talking about the subtle shift. He wasn't saying, here's how you mess up your life. Here's how you live a blessed life. Here's how you make the most out of your life. Blessed is the man who does not shift. He doesn't go for a walk with people who are doing life contra God. He certainly doesn't stand there with them and soak up their ideas, and he would never sit down with them and and be party to what they're doing. The blessed man stays the path and doesn't swerve from what God has said. It reminded me of recipes. This past Thursday, my daughter came over for a family dinner, and uh, she just moved into an apartment, so I decided to make her cookies to celebrate, and I just like cookies. Um, I make chocolate chip cookies. Maybe you've heard me talk about them before. If you were around during COVID, I actually went on Facebook Live and I showed you how to make them. 10,000 people watched that Facebook Live. How bored were we during COVID? (laughs) But it's like any other recipe. There's not a lot of sophistication to it. It's just balances. If you put the right ingredients together the right way and cook them for the right amount of time, you get some good cookies. But here's what I didn't do Thursday. I didn't know, you know what? I know the recipe by heart. I've been making these things for 30 years. But today we're going to do it different. Instead of a half teaspoon of salt and a half a cup of sugar, I'm going to make it a half teaspoon of sugar and a half cup of salt. You may want to eat those cookies. I didn't do that because that would be dumb. When it came time to cook them, I know that in my oven at 400 degrees, these cookies take 11 minutes and 11 seconds to be perfect. You go on your microwave timer and you just go one, 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 right? And then you push that and off you go. But if I had said on Thursday, you know what? Let's add one more one. We'll go an hour and 11 minutes and 11 seconds. Who wants to eat those cookies when they come out? Now we're talking hockey pucks, people, right? I mean, this is not going to be good at all. And so there's a recipe to our food. There's a recipe to this life. And any slight deviation from the will of God, the path of God, is going to lead to decisions that will make a mess of what he otherwise intended for our good. Success comes from compliance. So again, if you want to make a mess of your life, let the adverse circumstances that you experience overwhelm you and turn your head away from the path that God has you on. The second surefire way to mess up your life is to take things into your own hands. Anybody done that? How'd it go for you? That's one of my favorite questions that I get to ask in counseling. People come in and detail for me the mess that they've made. I did this, this, and this, and this, and now she won't talk to me. They're like, wow, sounds like that didn't work out for you. You Want to hear what God wants you to do as a husband? Let's talk. Because your way of doing it doesn't seem to be working. 
When we take things into our own hands, um, invariably the mess is coming. Look what Saul does in verse nine. He says, give, give me that stuff, slight turn. And then he says, I'm offering this offering. He offers the burnt offering. Pressure got to him. He does what he believes he must to ensure the victory of Israel. And he feels good about it. Look what it says in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, here comes Sam. Like he's just finishing, without going too deep into the, is, um, the, the Jewish system of sacrifice, burnt offerings typically offered in the morning, okay? Peace offerings typically offered in the evening. Uh, they would sometimes take the foods or the leftovers from the burnt offerings and eat them for dinner, and as part of that, offer a peace offering in addition. So uh, it's probably mid-morning or so that Samuel finally crests the hill and heads into camp at Gilgal, right? And Saul has just finished the first portion of what uh, Samuel, had told, Samuel had told him he would be offering on behalf of Israel. But Saul thinks nothing of it. He's like, oh, good, you're here. You can do the other half. He goes out to meet him and greet him. He wasn't hiding. He was pretty sure he'd done a good thing, a wise thing. Or he doesn't realize that he's done the one thing that will cost him and his family the throne. Anybody ever notice that we're really good at convincing ourselves we're right even when we're wrong? Has anybody noticed this about ourselves? We're just so sure that what we're choosing is going to be for the best. It's just the right thing for me. That's, that's what I hear the most of the time. For me, this is just what I need to do. And for those of us who believe in God and that he has a will for our lives, that should never be the determiner of what we do. The for me part of this comes far distant to the for him part of this. So for me and my relationship, my marriage, this is what I need to do. It doesn't matter what you need to do. What matters was what God wants you to do, and you submit to that what Saul needed to do. For me, this was right. But for God, it wasn't. Can I tell you a story about yesterday, too? I, I, while I was out, before I saw Dad and after he'd fallen and classes lost and all that stuff, uh, I had been out looking for a place to get Eleanor's oil changed. Um, I had gotten in her car. We had driven together somewhere, and I would noticed the stickers. Anybody got a sticker up in the corner from where you get your oil changed? I was like 3,000 miles past what I was supposed to have it. And, and, you know, that's, it's an older car. It's like, oh, I got to get this done. So I went out on Saturday morning to try to find a place to get the oil changed. Did you know the entire uh, region gets their oil changed on Saturday mornings? Does anybody know this? I didn't know this. I'd never tried on a Saturday morning. She was busy doing some other things. We usually hang out. And so while she was busy, I thought I'd sneak out and do this. There was like 12 cars deep at every, uh, you know, oil change place that I went out to. Look. And so I, here's what I came up with, people. Well, I guess I got to change the oil myself. Yeah, some of you have been here before. Anyway, uh, so I go to Napa Auto Parts and I get all the gear. I get all the oil stuff. I get all the air filters, engine and cabin. You know, I get all that stuff. And I go to the house and I'm going to do this thing. I'm all, you know, slicked up. And I, I start, uh, let the engine cool down. So I start with the air filters. And I kind of botch that. I don't have time. But uh, uh, I eventually get the, the, the lid off of the air filter where it goes. And I pull the air filter out. And it looks like it was put in yesterday, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's clean as a whistle. And I don't know everything about cars, but I know this has not been in this vehicle for the duration 
of what, you know, is indicated on the sticker, you know, for my last oil change. I know that. And so I start to ponder, and then I remember. In December, one of the engine lights came on for Eleanor, and so we put her car at the shop over Christmas vacation. Uh, and while it was there, I said to the guy, just flippantly, hey, would you mind switching out the oil? And he had. He just hadn't switched out the sticker. So I'm really thankful that everybody gets their oil changed in Brandon on Saturday morning because I saved myself however much that was uh, because I would have changed good oil for good oil. Now I have all the gear for when it actually is time for me to you know, change the oil, and I look forward to the challenge. This is one of those situations where I knew that I knew that I was right and I was wrong. Anybody been there? And this was a benign situation, worked out okay. But there are other situations in your life and in mine where we know that we know that we know that we're right and we're dead wrong. And we're headed in a direction that is gonna make a mess of our lives. And that's what's happened with Saul. You wanna know what Samuel says to him? Look at the next verse. What have you done? I can still hear my mom. Anybody, anybody, anybody got like a memory from childhood where your mom walked in and she just looks around the room that you've de- decimated somehow and she's like, what? And she pauses between every word like that. What have you done? Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, Samuel greets Saul and understands, knows, maybe he saw the soot on his clothing, I don't know, but he knows that he's offered the burnt offering and gone outside of what had been commanded him. And he asks the question, what have you done? It's a common question in scripture, you can probably imagine that, right? Lots of people mess up in our book. I love that about our book. It doesn't hide the flaws of people. Lots of people mess up in our Bibles. And invariably, those who are in you know, spiritual authority over them come to them and ask what Samuel asked Saul, what have you done? Most famously, God himself comes up to the first humans in Genesis chapter three after they've chosen the first sin. They're hiding from God. Yeah, like that could work. And uh, he, he plays along for a second. Where are you guys? And uh, they come out from their hiding and why are you hiding from me? Well, we realized that we were naked and we felt shame so we just didn't want you to see us in our nakedness. And he says, oh, how did you know you were naked? Like a father, you know, <laughs> Just anyway. And so he, he asks Adam in, in so many words, what have you done? And he, remember what Adam does? He doesn't answer his question. He starts pointing. It's the first point in human history. And he points to the woman. He says, this woman, so he points to her, and then he points at God. He says, that you gave to me. Doubles up. Her fault, your fault, not mine. This woman that you gave to me, and then he reveals that she's done the one thing, the one command that God had given them not to do. And so God goes to Eve, and he literally says to her in Genesis 3, what have you done? And she's already been outed. Like, he ratted her out, right? And what does she do? Yeah, Adam's right, no. Second point in human history. And she points at the snake. He says, that reptile, he tempted me and it's his fault. And Satan's over there like. 
and humanity flies off into sin. And, and for the first time, we see the third thing that is guaranteed to make a mess of your life occur in human history. It's what Saul's about to do. It's what you can do if you want to stay in the mess that you're in. Refuse to take responsibility for your own actions. Blame everybody else. God himself. But don't, don't take any of the blame for you. Want to see how Saul words it? Look what it says in verse 11, the second part. Saul says, after Samuel asks him, what have you done? Saul says, well, when I saw that the people were scattering for me, okay, I was stressed, man. My army went from 3,000 to 600. When I saw that they were scattering for me, and when I saw that you did not come when I expected you to come, which is what he means by the days appointed, like the days that I appointed within the seven that you allotted. I thought you'd be here earlier. So when I saw the people scatter, when I saw that you weren't here, when I heard that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash and knew that they would arrive, I said to myself, now the Philistines will come down against me, the Gilgal and I have not yet sought the favor of the Lord, which I know that I know that I know. we got to have if we're going to win this fight. See, I was trying to tilt things. I was doing a good thing. And then he puts it, this is my favorite line in the whole thing. So I forced myself. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I had no choice. If you don't hear anything else I say today, Where's the camera? Online, if you don't hear anything else I say today, in the room, if you don't hear anything else I say to you, look at me and listen. You got me? Hear me when I say this. If you chose it, it's your choice. If it's happened in your life, and that, I'm not saying that there's certain things that happen around us that we have to react to, but, but if, if, if something has come from you, you've elicited uh, a course of action, all of the excuses in the world will not justify that choice to go against God and his will and away from the path that he's given you. Are you hearing me? Because if they do justify those things, it makes God a liar. Because God writes in his word that there's no temptation common to man that he cannot see you through. If you succumb to some temptation because of all the pressure and all the circumstances and all that stuff, and you say, it's not my fault, then you're making God a liar because he said he'd see you through it. Are you with me? When Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that means in those situations where you feel like this is impossible, God will give us the strength to see through those things and get through those things. And when we choose him not and we say, it's not my fault, we're making him a liar. It's not going to go well for Saul moving on. He's, uh, he's given in to the adverse circumstances that are around him. It's turned his head to the point where he's taken things into his own hands. He's made a decision outside the will of God. He, perhaps, we don't know this, but perhaps he could have made things right if he had just owned it and fessed up, but instead he refused to take any of the blame and deflected and and as a result, he's made a mess. Samuel says to him, verse 13, 
you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. I love it when they double up in, in the Bible. You see how many, he says command twice there. It's actually translated uh, in different ways in, in subsequent verses, but he says command, the same Hebrew word, four different times. Command, 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 command. It's like you don't have any excuse, Saul. You knew the orders were what they were. And you chose not to keep the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, as a result of your choice, your kingdom shall not continue. Now, some of you have read before in 1 Samuel, you know that Saul continues to be king. He's actually king, it tells us in the book of Acts, for 40 years over Israel. It's a good run. Actually, it's not a good run. It's a horrible run, but but he's there for a long time. What does he mean when he says your kingdom will not continue? He doesn't mean instantly. He says, I'm taking your family out as those who will will reign in Israel. You're going to be the only one of your kind because I'm going to go in a different direction. Hmm. Some of you are like, man, what a bummer story. Guy makes a bad choice. The consequences are severe. Is there any hope in this story at all? Can I give you the, the hope in the story? Who likes, who likes the good news at the end of the bad news? Anybody like that? Let me share with you the only surefire way then to not make a mess of your life, but to make the most of your life. You want to make a mess? Give in to the pressure. Take things into your own hand. And then make excuses when you fail. That'll make a mess. But if you want to make the most, there's one thing. Seek the heart of God. So Samuel tells Saul, you're done, and God's going to install a different king. He describes him in the last part of verse 14. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded, there's that word again, this man to be prince over his people. I love how uh, God, through Samuel, describes the king of Israel. Never calls him king. He always always calls the king of Israel the prince of his people. Why? Because God's the king. So there'll be a new prince over Israel, a man after my own heart, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Spoiler alert, this guy's name's David. Uh, His dad's Jesse. He's He's not the right son to be given this honor. He's out in the field watching sheep, but but God chooses him. He doesn't look like Saul. He's not tall and magnificent. But it says in our uh, story about David that God looks at the heart, not the exterior. He looks at the heart when he entrusts leadership to someone. And David has a heart. After his God, not perfectly, Bathsheba, anybody with me, right? He's not perfect, but for the most part in David's story, whenever there's a decision to made, his first move to be made, his first move is to go to God, to seek him. He certainly would not uh, transgress the commands of God. It had been said early in the, uh, uh, the anointing of kings that no, one, no one's hand would rise up against one of God's kings. And so even as Saul sought to kill David, spoiler alert again, there's going to be a long chasing of this, uh, this interloper 
you know, this other anointed. Saul's gonna try to kill him wherever he can, chases him all over Israel. And twice in his story, David has the opportunity to drive a spear through his rival and be done. All of his friends are saying, kill him! We're in the darkness of this cave. Saul's actually using the facilities. He's defenseless, utterly defenseless. And David's men say, let's be done with this, end this guy. And later in the story, he's cut off a little piece of Saul's robe as he was using the bathroom, and he holds it up on the other side of a valley and says, Saul, I could have killed you, but God told me not to raise a hand against his anointed. I'll let him take care of this, even though most of his psalms are penned in anguish, crying out to God saying, why? You anointed me. I didn't ask for this. Why is it so hard? But in those psalms, he says, but not, in essence, my will, but yours be done. I'll trust you. You're my strong tower. You're my shield. I'll let you be my defense. That's David. David's got a heart after his God. And he seeks him, not perfectly, but as a norm. That's his setting in life. What's yours? What's your setting? I know it's Sunday morning. You're probably doing pretty good right now. Way to go. God's got you. You're following him. What happens when you get out there? What happens when you get home? What happens when you get in those stressful situations and you know that you know that you know that God wants you to bring his fruit, his character to those situations, but you're feeling the stress and your head's slightly turning and you say, bring me that stuff, and you take things into your own hands. And then when someone confronts you on your behavior, you say, was it my fault? If she was a better wife, I'd be a better husband. If he was a better son, I'd be a better dad. If he was a better boss, I'd work harder. Huh. If you want to make a mess of your life, Give in to adverse circumstances, take things in your own hands, and make excuses. If you want to get the most out of life, find peace with God. Stay the narrow road. Repent and return when you fail. Those sentiments are kind of carried in, uh, as Darnisha comes to play, they're carried in the, in the words of the third king of Israel. We've talked about Saul. We've talked about his successor, David. David has a son. His name is Solomon. He's king number three. When he comes to power, God comes to him as a young king and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? I'll give it to you. And Saul says, wisdom. Give me wisdom. That God-given wisdom enables him to write one of the books in your Bible. It's called the Proverbs. Saul writes it to his sons, the princes of Israel. And he says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in the first chapter. He says, listen, man. Can I just give you, from my experience, what you need to make the most of your life? He says a bunch of stuff, but then he gets to chapter 3, and he says probably the most famous verses in the whole of the 31 chapters of Proverbs. He tells this to his sons. Say it with me if you know it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. I don't know if I said it word for word for what's behind me. That's how I memorized it. It's a simple two-verse statement, but it captures everything that we've been talking about this morning. 
Our lives are determined by our decisions. We are the sum of those choices. And in every choice, the big ones that we face of the 35,000 we'll make today, we have the choice to stay the path, stay the course with our God, trust in him. Or we have the choice like Saul uh, to acknowledge uh, our own ways, to lean on our own understandings, right? My prayer for you this day and every day is that you will trust in the Lord. Some of you haven't even started yet. You're here this morning and God's kind of new to you and you don't understand. Let me, let me tell you, the first decision you need to make is in terms of who God is and who you are is to put faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You want to make the most of your life? You put your faith in Jesus and you let him save you from your sin. That's decision one. I know many of us have made that choice. And so we wake up every day, and my prayer for you with every day is that you live out what Solomon told his sons. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understandings. You want to make the most of your life? Seek God with all of your heart.